It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Hey, Torn, how's it going? It's actually wonderful over here in Baltimore. We call it Charm City. How about you? <laughs> it's pretty damn cold here in Columbus, Indiana, but uh, we're getting through. I'm pretty pumped up about recording our very first episode of Crazy and the King and all of the awesome content we have coming at you guys today. So I thought it might be a good idea to kind of give everyone who knows us and maybe doesn't know us yet a little bit of background on Julian Torn. Is that cool? Yeah, that's cool. I like that. And actually, I'll go first. You know, for me, uh, Julie, I do diversity strategy and try to consider myself to be a risk mitigator. And so on a day-to-day basis, I'm working with enterprise clients, a lot of logos that you know, some that you do not know, uh, trying to help them optimize their their recruiting strategy of underrepresented talent. And I broadly define underrepresented talent. And really, in that optimization process, it's about making sure that they understand that there are certainly a variety of incredible ways for for them to to be able to do that recruitment better. And so we try to operate through the lens of leadership. I'm also a Sirius XM host, published author, and we do a little bit of writing from time to time. How about you? Nice, nice. You're, you're a pretty cool guy. So yeah, as I heard, said in the teaser, I don't know if you guys heard it, but I'm a female and I suffer from mental illness. I actually have multiple mental illnesses, but during the day I get to work for an amazing nonprofit called Disability Solutions. And through that, I get to build amazing hiring and retention programs for people with disabilities all across the globe. Um, over the past three or four years, we've helped nearly 2,000 people with disabilities get hired in amazing, forward-thinking, proactive companies who actually see the talent value that we bring to the table. And so I'm happy to be here, stuck in Columbus, Indiana, but uh, talking to y'all. We love Columbus, Indiana. So tell them about the show. What should they expect with this being episode number one? You know, folks are going to be down downloading it into their library. They're going to be searching for us on iTunes. I know we have some listeners that are going to be pushing the share button uh, and getting other friends and colleagues to, to tune in. So, so what can they expect? All right. So easy format. Every week or so, we're going to talk about the big diversity and inclusion stories that are happening all around us. Some are going to be overt. Some are going to be much more nuanced. Some will be work-related. Some are just going to be in our society and the things that we see that are happening around us. We're going to bring the best ones to you every other week. And voila, we have Crazy and the King. Crazy and the King. And let's get into it. And, and before we do that, you know, for the listeners, probably recognize that a few days ago you celebrated uh, Martin Luther King's 90th birthday, or you would have celebrated his 90th birthday. And with his holiday weekend approaching, What we would ask is that because he stood for equity and justice for all, and he wanted people to understand that I am a man, he wanted people to understand that humanity is extremely important. Julie and I are encouraging each of you to try to figure out a different way to spend this Martin Luther King holiday, whether that be volunteering at a soup kitchen, getting at uh, some organization inside of your community, whether it be getting outside of your comfort zone and attending one of the many events across the country, find a way to honor, to pay that respect to one of the greatest individuals that have ever walked on the face 
of this earth, uh, Mr. Martin Luther King, his 90th birthday. So, Julie, listen, the first story that kind of got my blood boiling, you know, as the oh, yeah. as the old folks say, got my hive a little chafed um, <laughs> was a story um, on Palantir Technologies and Oracle. Um, actually, it was titled Oracle and Palantir said diversity figures were trade secrets. The real secret is embarrassing numbers. And that actually was a story in Reveal, R-E-V-E-A-L, dated January 7th of this year. And let me just kind of set this thing up. You know, Julie, this story Hold was- Hold on, around- Torin. I, I think we have to give a, a huge shout out to Reveal News. Oh, yeah. The stuff that they are doing right now is amazing. They have an entire database of information on diversity employers in Silicon Valley like they're fighting the good fight. They're actually getting that information out here because they had to sue to get this information. I think it's amazing. So huge props to them. Sorry, go ahead. Big props to them. And you're absolutely right. And we appreciate in individuals enlisted in doing this work because it is definitely a heavy lift. So here's the deal. Palantir Technology said uh, in the article that that they needed to hide their their diversity numbers, particularly as they related to women and people of color, so that competitors won't steal their talent. They needed to hide their numbers. Like they didn't want to talk about them. They didn't want to release their numbers to the government. They most certainly didn't want to do one of those um, diversity reports at the end of the year because they felt like individuals like myself and so many other talented recruiters, internal and external, would steal their talent. Like I've never heard a crock of bullshit stuff. Yeah, I've just <laughs> never heard something so because listen, as recruiters, that's what we do. You know, we create stories and, you know, invite individuals to consider new and fresh and engaging opportunities. And so we are really up against the competition all the time. It, it's, you know, a war for talent. That's been a phrase that's been around since like 1998. And so for reveal, to have to fight for the Freedom of Information Act to get these numbers, it says a lot. The company, in the end, what they found out was the company had no female or no women executives and only one woman, one amongst its management ranks. Pitiful numbers. Pitiful, pitiful, pitiful numbers. So I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. And I want to ask you a question, Julie. If they were concerned <laughs> that people would steal their talent, I'm trying to figure out who they steal and they don't have anybody working there that's diverse. Yeah, they didn't have much talent to steal. I mean, let's be honest, this is a complete PR and communication failure overall. They knew that this information was getting requested. They have just settled last year, and or I'm sorry, in 2017, an OFCCP discrimination suit against hiring Asian Americans. I, they're a mess. And to approach the whole conversation in a competitive, oh, don't steal my talent that doesn't exist is it just fall on your sword at some point, right? I'd say we're working on it. We're not doing it well. If we tell people it's going to be negative PR, it's going to impact our actual recruiting that we're trying to do negatively. Now, I'll hand it back over to you, but I have to say I I checked out their career center today, Palantar particularly, and I didn't see much effort, anything that had really changed to say that they really want to start moving towards hiring women, people of color, and making sure that their diversity is getting right. So I'm not sure that they've learned from this quite yet, 
But I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. And, and again, for those that don't know, Palantir was founded by or co-founded by Peter Thiel. Oh, yeah. uh, Thiel, I'm sorry, uh, the billionaire Peter Thiel. And, and the reason why I bring this up is because they're not only operating in the commercial space, um, you know, in the the, the public, I'm sorry, the private sector, but they're also drawing on, you know, a number of government contracts. They're, yeah. they're, they're receiving, you know, millions and millions of dollars in government con- contracts. I know that they're experiencing a lot of controversy these days for helping law enforcement track citizens, predict crime and, you know, other stuff that targets immigrants. And with all that's happening at the border, uh, with things that are happening over in Europe with Brexit, and we can probably go to a number of other countries around the world. This is the last thing that we need is an organization that is, you know, sucking up what I would consider to be tax dollars, if you will, going after yeah. great contracts that other organizations that have a bit more empathy, certainly a better representation of underrepresented talent where they could be buying for these. I just feel like it's a real, real bowl of bullshit, if you will, with um, them trying to hide from it. But but the article actually goes on to simply talk about some of the reasons for their hesitation. And and it talked about Oracle and Oracle argued that, you know, if 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 companies knew what their their diversity representation was, that it would it would be a threat to their competitive position. Yeah. Like I just I, I find it so incredibly frustrating that these billion dollar organizations are hiding behind these thinly veiled excuses, excuses that have allowed them to escalate in growth over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but yet do absolutely nothing or very, very little as it relates to increasing their effort in their initiatives towards diversity and inclusion. It's just sickening. It's frustrating. Yeah. And it really is. I mean, you think about a company like Oracle who has received hundreds of millions of dollars in federal contracts and they're doing a little bit better. I'll say that. I checked out their diversity and inclusion page. They've got actual numbers and and counters of percentages on their some of the diversity things that they know that they need to be working on. It looks like they still have an open lawsuit that's happening with the OFCCP right now. And so they're doing some things, right? I, I can see some forward action, at least at least from the front-facing activities that they're doing. And, and that's positive, but it's a failure to communicate. When you have your legal team creating an argument that this is based on competitive advantage or competitive threat, but on the other hand, you know that these kind of this information is going to get out and it's going to be a PR nightmare. You're not working with your talent acquisition team. You're not working with your marketing team. It's going to fail. Because the left hand has to know what the right hand is doing. And this doesn't work. So on top of just failing to do what they're supposed to do and what they would benefit from as a company, they're failing to even talk about it or or bring their arguments together in even a cohesive way. Well, you know, and Julie, when you talk about Oracle and they're putting up their diversity numbers on the website, listen, I'm actually a fan of that. I'm cool with uh, organizations releasing their diversity reports. I don't hold my breath. Right. Uh, I'm not necessarily banking uh, a day's worth of activity on the release of these particular reports. But if, if organizations feel like they want to be transparent and they want to share that information, I'm all for it. But the thing that really gets to me is how individuals are continuing to, to jump on them when organizations release the reports and the reports don't say what they are expecting them to say, when the reports reflect single digit growth. 
when we shame uh, organizations for the content of their report. Listen, we can't really have it both ways. If, if organizations are going to, to put the information out and they're going to be transparent and they're showing us that they're at least trying to do something. Listen, I actually, even in this particular conversation, I'll pull back a little bit and I'll, I'll take some of that venom uh, that I'm issuing out as it relates to Oracle because you bring up a good point. I guess we should give them credit for trying. What I want our listeners to understand is that it doesn't all rest in that the release of that diversity report. It's but a part of the process. It is but a part of the process. It requires a lot more attention. It requires that dedicated effort, that allocation of resources. It requires time. Listen, Julie, we didn't get to any of these places overnight, and we most certainly are not going to escape or elevate past them overnight. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I do. And I, I don't know that I necessarily think that you should pull back any of that venom. I think that when companies start moving towards transparency, it at least tells me that they're thinking about it. And you're absolutely right. If they're not doing it, it doesn't matter. And so PR stories, good feeling commercials, all of those things don't mean squat. If you're not actually hiring and you're thinking about your talent acquisition strategy as it relates to diversity and inclusion. And let me not even get started that we haven't even remotely talked about veterans or people with disabilities in any of these numbers. And so if you know that they're doing so badly on race and gender, then you know that they're struggling in those other categories as well. Yeah, yeah. Far worse, actually. Far worse. So for those that are listening, um, just a reminder, when you Grab our episode on a biweekly basis. We'll talk about a story and and we'll also include the link to the story so that you'll have that as a reference point. On the left side of the paper, you can probably put domain knowledge and sandbox. And on the right side of the paper, you could probably write down the word opinion. And what I think is that Julie and I are probably going to we're going to stay somewhere in the middle and to the left, if you will, because we want to make sure that what we are saying is rooted in some level of fact and and hopefully some data and something that, you know, supports the reason why we are having this conversation. Speaking of speaking of speaking data of. and and uh, conversation. So I want to kind of slide over to uh, this other article, this other story around an organization rewarding people for bad behavior. So did you see what happened with Megan Kelly? Did you see that? Megan freaking Kelly. Yeah. Tell us. So that the $30 million payday for Megan Kelly. So back in October, you know, of last year around Halloween time, uh, probably was on Halloween, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. She was actually on air and I'm paraphrasing Julie, but she said, or she asked, why is it inappropriate for people to dress up in blackface during Halloween. Now, listen, you and I, this is episode one. So you have to start to learn my cadence and my rhythm and idiosyncrasies because you're not sitting in front of me. So I'm going to read that again. And then I'm going to (laughs) pause because I need you to understand that there's a reason the kid is pausing. So back in (laughs) October. Yes, in October. She was on air and she said, why is it inappropriate? for white people to dress up in blackface for Halloween. No, she did not. Almost as offensive as Stephen King, the congressman from Iowa, and I'm embarrassed to say that I grew up in Iowa. Yeah, Stephen King is disgusting. 
from Iowa, Stephen King asking, when did white nationalist, white supremacists become offensive? So do you want to know what is so 2019? 2019. I just a couple of days ago watched Stephen King vote on a measure condemning his interview in the New York Times and his use of the words white nationalists and white supremacists. How does that even happen? Does it matter? What do you mean he condemned it? So the House put up a measure to condemn the words that he used. Okay. And he voted in support of condemning the words that he just used in the New York Times article. (laughs) How? So it's okay to continue to be an overt racist in the New York Times as long as you condemn on the House floor what you just said. That makes tons of sense, right? And and I think we got in the same situation with Megyn Kelly when she got hired at, at NBC because she has a history, a long history of racist remarks, racist behavior, overt. And, and I honestly had never really heard of Megyn Kelly before 2016 when she did the presidential debate because I don't watch Fox News for a reason. And I looked up when we were getting ready for this conversation and just read the long laundry list of what she's said and done over the years. And I want to know, you know, and I know you're kind of still setting us up here, but how does Megyn Kelly get a job on NBC to kind of become like one of the flagship hosts with that kind of history of behavior? So again, she's coming from Fox News and I, you know, listen, I don't watch any TV. So I don't watch MSNBC. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch Fox. I don't watch any of them. But she's coming from Fox News and apparently, apparently she has built up a following over at Fox News. And and I'm just um, amazed that NBC felt like it was the right hiring decision to fire or to to separate or part ways with Tamron Hall. Um, and, and I'll have you know, you know, Julie, that Tamron and Al Roker had a top rated morning show on NBC News. And on the day that Tamron's contract was up, she announced that she would be leaving or perhaps it was a a few days before. And so all of this came out that her immediate or, you know, departure had everything to do with NBC trying to make way for Megyn Kelly. And so I can't tell you, you know, all of the the nuances as to, to what they saw in her background, you know, because I haven't looked at her resume. I haven't checked out her dossier in any way. And, and, and I don't know what news folks look for in terms of talent. But what I can tell you is she has had several infractions as it relates to things that she has said, not just off air, but on air. Yeah. And here's my question. When you are reprimanded and let go from your show, and I recognize that people have contracts and agreements in place. And all of the listeners out there who are saying, well, Torn, you know, if you recognize the contract and agreement, then why are you asking the question? I'm asking the damn question because I want to. I want to understand if you are let go from an organization because of your insensitivity to a group of people or because of your stupidity around a group of people or worse, both, then why is it that you would pay her? million. And then assume that that's not going to have an impact on your environment. Can can you can you speak to that? Honestly, it's dumbfounding to me how anyone executive wise gets paid out of this kind of contract. But it seems like just good 
diversity practice to maybe put in a clause that says if you are an overt racist or you say overt racist things that you don't get the payout. I mean, $30 million and she worked a year and a half-ish and they pulled her almost immediately because of the backlash. But they knew it going in and they didn't prep for that either. There was no change. NBC is fully responsible for the decision that they made to bring her on and now they have to deal with that from the payout perspective, but Megyn Kelly gets to walk off scot-free and probably gets picked back up by Fox or someone else. Yeah. So this is really around, you know, rewarding bad behavior. And so for, for those that are listening, you know, what we're really encouraging is that, you know, from a diversity, equity, and inclusion standpoint, if you are really serious about taking that posture, if you are committed to chasing that diversity, equity, and inclusion in your organization, if you are uh, believing that inclusion is definitely equally as important as the front side of diversity, bringing talent into the organization, if in fact you are dedicated to going through and evaluating compensation levels for every single person, no matter what gender, no matter what education, no matter what geographic location, no matter what skill set, no matter um, you know their famil- familial status, no matter any of those things, if you are genuinely committed to finding some level of equity and parity inside of your organization, then this is an example of how you do not do the work or how you do not display the work. This story is re- reminiscent right now of what came out. We didn't even talk about it. We don't have it on our list, but it came out in the last you know several weeks how Google has paid some executive or some guy that left like $90 million. And this cat was facing all types of harassment charges, sexual allegation charges in the organization. And they quietly gave him $90 million and sent him on his way. See, this is the type of this is the type of story that makes it a challenge for your recruiting team to be able to go out and build high performing teams for your organization. Because I can promise you, I am not interested in working for an organization that is rewarding bad behavior. Or spending your dollars with them. Or spending your dollars with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you got? I know you have something that you want to, you know, talk about something that you're chopping at the bit on. (laughs) So I'm going to I'm going to flip it a little bit. So there's been a new set of guidelines issued this week by the American Psychological Association on best practices on treating male patients with mental health issues. What I think is good about this piece is that we don't normally talk about men and mental health. You know, we kind of leave mental health invisible. We never really get specific. So talk about that story. Yeah. So there's just a, a ton of backlash in multiple communities that are really focused on this as a way to emasculate men and how to further kind of empower women and minorities. And really what's so important to me is that as we ask white men in particular, who've always been the default patient to give up some of their power, to recognize their privilege, to change behaviors, to get rid of some of the toxic masculinity that is so ingrained in our society, we also have to be prepared to support the mental health challenges that already exist and how they're impacted and feel like they're not able to ask for help. But also as they go through this transition of accepting the fact that this is a more diverse country and it's not going to change and women are empowered and we're awake and we're doing things and that's not going to change. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a place 
for men who are mentally healthy and, and are part of that huge community that we're a part of. I, I think it's important that we, when we're considering diversity, that we're talking about the effects on men and how that works. So this article that you actually are talking about was in The Verge earlier this month. Uh, I want to say that it was on January 11th of 2019. Folks can find it at The Verge and definitely yes. we will make sure that it's posted uh, inside of the podcast and or in the show notes. But did the article talk about any things that we could do to maybe support men, perhaps support in terms of uncovering whether or not they're suffering from some level of mental health? If we find out that they're suffering, things that we can do, did the article go into that type of detail? So one thing that I, I don't think the article went into enough detail on is that not loving toxic masculinity and recognizing the positive pieces of masculinity is not a hit on men in general, right? I mean, I'm full disclosure, my husband is a, a retired dr drill sergeant. If I didn't love masculine men, then we wouldn't be having this conversation at all. But just because we love masculinity doesn't mean that we like toxic masculinity. And we have to make sure that as men are taking on this kind of post Me Too movement and the third wave of feminism, and they feel and they understand that empowering other men and, the, and empowering females doesn't remove their power. It actually empowers them even more. And so we really have to talk more openly about when we suffer from mental illness and when we are having a hard time. I think this is something that the hip hop and rap community has actually done a really nice job of, of saying, hey, something's not working. I need some help. This is where things are messed up. And other men can take that cue and know that it's not a weakness. It's actually very powerful to be able to ask for help instead of holding all of that in. And that doesn't even start to push into what's happening with our veterans who are definitely trained not to talk about their feelings and, and the things that are happening that, to them. I, I just think this APA is going to continue to help treat men better. And hopefully that's going to impact our veterans as well. Yeah. So um, it sounds to me like you are definitely talking about allyship. Did they mention allyship at all in the article? I don't think so. I don't. I think they're really just saying, hey, this is here. It just happened its best practices. And there are a lot of men who are uncomfortable with it. And so that's really the focus there. And I think, you know, in, in my brain, it's our job to kind of open up that conversation about why it's okay for a man or a woman to say, I don't feel right. I don't feel good. I need some help. Just because something's not working in your brain doesn't mean that you're broken. So before you close this up, Julie, let me just say that, you know, you mentioned toxic masculinity. And that's a great, great, you know, pen holder, if you will, for me to drop a few comments around me too. Number one, uh, Gillette came out this week, I believe it was with a great commercial, uh, really around changing their tagline and, and just showing men as allies, yeah. if you will. And, and they may not have leaned on the word allyship, but they really wanted, you know, people to see the commercial and walk away with a feeling that men can do better. Like we can really step up and do better as it relates to bullying and as it relates to sexual allegations and sexual misconduct and workforce performance. There are certainly so many ways that we can do better, that we can be supportive of one another. Really, the essence of the article, the essence of the commercial, I'm sorry, the essence of the commercial was that it really is incumbent upon men to check, to check 
to check other men, to make sure that other men are not causing these infractions. Listen, this stuff has gone on for far too long, way, way, way longer than anyone should have to endure. And we won't even start talking about some of the other aspects of discrimination and denial uh, that are present in our for We're just talking simply around men going into the workplace. And so I believe firmly that the Me Too movement uh, is, is, is a movement whose time has come. Yeah. I welcome it. I think it should be around as long as it needs to be around. I think that, you know, since uh, the Weinstein sort of catalyst in this whole thing, before Weinstein, there were about 30 people that had had been, um, you know, accused or, or you know, pointed, the, had the finger pointed at them as it relates to Me Too. And post Weinstein has been, you know, more than 200 high profile folks. And I'm not smiling because I'm supportive, but I am smiling because it's like, get your shit right. You understand what I'm saying? Just get it right. You know, just go to work, do what you're supposed to do and and, and carry carry it home. You know, carry it home. It it really ain't all that heavy. You know, do what you're supposed to do in the workplace and carry it home. So it really doesn't seem like it should be that hard, right? It really shouldn't be that hard. So, Julie, listen, first episode of Crazy and the King, you actually said in the teaser and in our intro that we may not always get it right, but it would always be real. I am absolutely thrilled that we are going to be on this journey and growing this particular piece. What I will say, and I'll turn it over to you, I just want to encourage people to listen. If you're critical, leave me a comment. Yeah, leave us a comment. Whenever Torn is wrong, please, please. That's right. Leave Leave a comment. comment. (laughs) If there's something you want us to talk about, leave a comment. Go to our social media feeds, find my email address on LinkedIn, go to my website. I have thick skin. We want to make this 20, 25 minute medium worth your time. So be constructive, share your observations, share your critique, but most importantly, share some time with Julie and I. Yeah, absolutely. The more that we hear from you, the better this show becomes, the more it means to you, the more you get out of it, the more we get out of it. It's a it's a learning process together. And, and I do want to say one more thing about the Me Too movement before you move on from that. I think it's incredible. But here's the thing that I think is important is We've had the Year of the Woman before in 1992 after the Anita Hill hearings, and we really thought we were making a change and that women were moving forward and we weren't going back. And we did, but we've given a lot back in the meantime. And I think what's so important with Me Too and and 110 or so women coming into our Congress and into leadership in Washington that's so important is that women refuse to get complacent. We have to own our place. It's not going to be given to us. And when we take some of that power that that we've been given as of recently, we can bet that there is going to be some backlash and there's going to be some pushback. I, I think a lot of us, and I'm talking a little out of school here, but thought when President Obama got elected, we had kind of gotten there. Well, in, in 2016, we saw just how much fight there was left in people who didn't believe in including women, who didn't believe in including gender diversity and and people of color and people with disabilities. And we have to be diligent. And I think if there's one thing that this show is going to do for me is it's going to help me to be more diligent and not give up the place and the strides that we've all taken in the past 10 years. So again, you all, we promise to put all the links for the stories, the articles that we touched on uh, inside of the show notes. 
We will make sure that you get that. We will make sure that we continue to dedicate ourselves to being prepared every other week. But what's most important is that we will do an episode bi-weekly. So the next episode, mark your calendars, do your iTunes feeds, go to Podbean, do all that you can to stay plugged in, do all that you can to tell a friend, to tell a friend, to tune in to Crazy and the King. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.